the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, good afternoon and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. It is, of course, the program where we typically take your calls and answer your questions about the things you care the most about, questions about God and the historical Jesus, questions about the Bible, questions about worldviews and world religions. We take all kinds of questions. And if you'd like to join me on the program. It's so easy to do. You just pick up the phone, you dial the number 303-873-1935. Producer Jim is waiting to take your call, 303-873-1935. He'll ask you what your question is or your comment, and we'll make every effort to get your question or comment on the program. Again, the number is 303-873-1935. We talk about history with my friend Bill Federer, who is the author of the American Minute, and we talk about prophecy, which is the future, and everything in between. So again, if you'd like to join me, it's 303-873-1935. Speaking of the American Minute, well, this these are notable events of American significance remembered on the date that they occurred. For today's date, April 4th, It's uh, Bill Federer writes, and I quote, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated April 4th, 1968. I'm going to pause for a moment because some of you remember that. Some of you are old enough to remember where you were and what you were doing and how old you were when you discovered that the Reverend Martin Luther King um, Jr. was killed. He was the pastor of Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church. He rose to national prominence through the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1964. Congress set aside his birthday as a national holiday. Reverend King said August 28, 1963, quote, Now is the time to open the doors of opportunity to all of God's children. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity. We must not allow our protests to degenerate into physical violence. We we cannot walk alone, unquote. And of course, Reverend Martin Luther King continued. He said, quote, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood, unquote. Martin Luther King, well, finished by saying, 
I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, unquote. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. Let's see who's up. Gail, welcome to the program. Hi, Gino. How are you? You know what? I've had a sort of a lingering head cold slash sinus infection. So if I sound a little nasally, I apologize. Oh, yeah. Don't apologize. That's that's no fun. We've all dealt with that lately, it seems. Well, I was just calling because I was curious what your thoughts are on tattoos and what the Bible says about tattoos. My uh, son, of course, a young man, he likes tattoos and has several of them. And my mother, grandma, 85 years old, is pretty condemning about that. And you know, says the Bible. Well, maybe, totally maybe, it. maybe you should tell Grandma. Hey, maybe you and I can get a tattoo together, or <laughs> maybe she would say, "At my age, it's just a cry for help. It's just a cry for help." But yeah, tattoos aren't what she, in her world, in the world that she grew up in, tattoos mm-hmm. were for people who were delinquent and who were re- in in a state of rebellion. And in the New Testament, it doesn't really say anything about tattoos, but there are some issues that it does address. And obviously, in the Old Testament, um, the Bible has a prohibition against uh, tattoos. But the prohibition that's given in the Old Testament really has a context even then. In the ancient world, people would get tattoos much in in many ways to identify with a deity that they followed. And and the only thing I can sort of um, give an example, it would be like how people have their home team and they root for them like the Broncos or like, you know, uh, the Kansas city chiefs or whatever, you know, you're from this area and you get this tattoo as a means of identifying with the larger group. And so the children of Israel were prohibited. Um, it in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28, it says, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. So some people would cut their bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks as an act of veneration or as an act of identification. And so the reason for the prohibition of tattoos isn't stated in the, in the passage, but we know a little bit about the ancient pagan practices and its association with idolatry and superstition. And so for the Israelites, they weren't supposed to do that. Now, the way that I would talk about that is in the New Testament, we're not under the same prohibition. There's no prohibition in the New Testament that says you can't tattoo your body, but there's lots of reasons why I think it's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree. <laughs> and And obviously, you know, you get a tattoo at 
18 or 19. And by the time you're 66, you know, you get a ship, you know, on your biceps and now it's turned into a submarine or, (laughs) you know, you know, your, your body starts to droop and sag, you know, you, you go to lift up your socks and then you realize you're not wearing any. And, (laughs) and so so the Bible does say that children are to obey their parents in Ephesians chapter six. So, you know, do, do parents have the right to say to their child, you know what? I think this is a bad idea. Um, well, I've been telling them things like what you're saying for years, but he's old enough. He's an adult now. He's 23. So he can, you know, do what he likes, but uh, you know, this, I- this falls into the huge category that I've talked about a lot in in on this program about um things that are um questionable like questionable things that's talked about in Romans chapter 14 and in Romans chapter 15 and then again i would say well does the new testament talk about outward adornment well it's not as important as the inward self um god looks at the heart and the motivation and so you have this situation where um, in Romans 14, yeah, Paul talks about, am I fully convinced? Can I do this as unto the Lord? Will it stand the test of the judgment seat? So is it a sin to get a tattoo? No. Is it a cultural cry for help? I think so. <laughs> well, thank you, Gina. Thank you for calling. Hey, thanks for calling. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number is 303-873-1935. You know, in, in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, it says, Whatever does not come from faith is sin. And so in that section, in Romans chapter 14 and 15, where Paul is dealing with questionable things in the Christian life, he recognizes that in each local church there are mature believers, we who are strong, he uses that term, as well as the immature, him that is weak in the faith, and that these two groups may disagree on how the Christian is to live, and the Jewish Christians might want to cling to certain holy days or observe certain dietary laws. And so Paul is literally creating a mechanism whereby people who disagree about certain things can, can come to some common agreement. But again, Paul understands that certain people have to make certain choices for themselves. And it is true in Leviticus 19.28 that for the Jew to get a tattoo would have been unconscionable. Um, And so, again, in Leviticus 19.28, where it says, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves, I am the Lord. The reason for the prohibition of the tattoo in the passage isn't stated exactly, but it's, again, likely that tattooing was a pagan practice connected with idolatry and superstition. And it was probably common for the pagans to mark their skin 
with the name of a false god or some symbol honoring that god. And so the Lord demanded that his children be different. And so that's why Paul will argue, am I fully convinced? Can I do this as unto the Lord? Will it stand the test at the judgment seat? Is it causing other people to stumble? Can I do this by faith? Am I doing this to please myself or to uh, please others? And so, again, um, if a Christian chooses to get a tattoo, it, it obviously shouldn't be for superstitious reasons or to promote some, some worldly philosophy that is literally against what the Bible says. But again, you should understand that people have the freedom in Christ to do a lot of different things. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. 303-873-1935. One of the um, questions that I was going to deal with is this issue of uh, bibliomancy. Now, that might be a term that um, that you're unfamiliar with. This is the name that's given to the practice of opening the Bible and reading a passage at random. Maybe you've even done it. You know, you're trying, you're praying to, to God, and you're having some sort of conversation, and you start flipping through the pages, and then you stick your finger on some passage in the hopes that that's the word that God has for you. So. What is that? That's bibliomancy. It's the practice of opening the Bible or some other book at random. Some people do this when they're looking for guidance. But again, is this the right way to read the Bible? No, it's not the right way. Is it a foolish way? Yes. You know, people use the old canard you know, imagine um, a person is thinking about killing themselves, and they open to the passage where it says Judas went and hung himself, and they go, oh, what else? They flip the page, and they go, go and do likewise, and you go, no, this is probably a bad idea. So bibliomancy is the practice generally of divination by a book when it comes to the Bible— it's using it, using the Bible, not as a source of revelation, but a tool of divination. And that's not what the Bible is. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. I have open lines. And of course, producer Jim is standing by to take your call. 303-873-1935. Um, turning to a random page in a sacred book has a long history. In ancient times, the works of Homer and Virgil were used. Now, bibliomancy often refers to fortune-telling by means of the Bible. But by no means is the Bible the only book that's used in, in what's called bibliomancy. Now, again, like necromancy means speaking to the dead. Or it's, again, a, a type of divination. Other books sometimes used that way are the I Ching and the Mahabharata and the Quran. 
So the process of bibliomancy involves asking a clear question, opening a book to a random page, trailing the finger in slow circles until the, the spirit says to stop, and the verse where the questioner's finger allegedly points to contains the answer that they're looking for. You know, again, uh, <laughs> bibliomancy is not biblical, and it's not wise, and it is foolish. It's the worst way to read the Bible. God's Word condemns all forms of divination in no uncertain terms. And uh, again, you should probably memorize Deuteronomy 18.10. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer. And of course, in Acts chapter 16, verse 16 is the story of uh, Paul. And they went to that place of prayer where they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. That word, the spirit of div- divination is pithanos. It, it was a word that was used to describe the idea of a snake squeezing you and, and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. And so again, this occult practice is considered wicked and evil. Why? God knows that people want information from a supernatural source. But the reason why occult practices were condemned is because God wants to be the source of information as you're looking for answers to life's most difficult questions. So, Does God speak to us through his word? I think that the answer is yes. Does God sometimes lead us to certain Bible verses that speak to us in times of need? I think that the answer is yes. God will sometimes cause us to stumble on a verse at precisely the right time because that's the message that we need right at that moment. And so whether you're talking about verses that deal with God's faithfulness or goodness or love, whether you're dealing with um, some issue of depression and you remember Psalm 147 verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. In Matthew 5, 4, it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And of course, the encouragement of Philippians 4, 6, don't be anxious about anything, but by everything with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, and uh, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so God's word was meant to be studied and understood and applied were to study God's word intentionally, not randomly. Ours is a reasonable faith based on careful consideration. 303-873-1935. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Tracy inviting you to call 
And uh, producer Jim asked me a question about, you know, we were talking about bibliomancy and and the idea of just opening up the Bible and using it as a magic eight ball. And uh, he asked me, you know, is that a kind of testing of God? And I think that the answer is yes. And so when we when we ask that different question, you know, what does that mean? What does it mean to test God? I think I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But before I do, 303-873-1935, that's the number if you want to join me on the program. Like I said, it's easy to do. You pick up the phone, you dial the number, 303-873-1935. We can talk about all kinds of stuff, but, um, you know, there's, well, well, I'll come back to it, but. 303-873-1935. And um, so what does that mean? And we have a great article that's posted at Got Questions, Your Questions, Biblical Answers. What does it mean? What does it mean to test God? And in the Bible, by the way, you can go there and, and get this article, but in the Bible, there are examples of both an acceptable and an unacceptable kind of testing of God. So it's acceptable to test God in regard to tithes and offerings. Where, but it's unacceptable when the test is rooted in doubt. What do you mean? Malachi chapter 3 verse 10 says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there won't be room enough to store it, unquote. So this is the only situation given in the Bible where the Lord says, dare I, dare I use that term? Dare me, dare me. In, in a real sense, God is telling his people to test him. So interestingly, the, word, the, the Hebrew word that's used for test is, in, in that verse in Malachi 3.10, is bachan, which means to examine, to scrutinize, or prove, as in gold, or persons, or the heart. In other words, it means to examine, scrutinize, concerning the validity or the value, much like you would test, again, a precious metal. And the metal, whether it's gold or silver, is tested to prove both its quality and consistency. God invites Israel to test him in tithes and offerings and see that he proves his faithfulness in response. There's another Hebrew word for test used elsewhere in the Bible, naka, which means to put to the test or to try or to tempt. Now, again, there's two kinds of put to the test, try or tempt. Temptation in the sense of a solicitation to do evil. So there is a test which becomes sort of like a solicitation. 
it's used that way in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. So the second unacceptable kind of testing is when doubt leads us to demand something of God to prove himself to us. And so that becomes a problem. And I think that maybe one of the biggest problems comes on the subject of the goodness of God. You know, this is one of those things that I get so often as people ask that question. And I'm happy to get the question, but there are some people who play, if you will, or toy. Sometimes they'll come right out and accuse God of not being good. So the second unacceptable kind of testing is when doubt leads us to demand something of God, to prove himself. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, in the wilderness in response to a temptation by Satan. You'll remember it says the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And Satan said, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's from Matthew chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Essentially, the devil was telling Jesus to prove God's word was true by manipulating or forcing God's hand. So if Jesus was in peril, God would have to save him. And Jesus refused to test God in that way. And so we're to accept God's word by faith without requiring a sign. Luke eleven twenty nine. It says, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, obviously, I think that that sign of Jonah is his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is going to die and he's going to come back to life. God's promises are there for us when we need them to manipulate situations in an attempt to coerce God into fulfilling his promises is evil. So the occasion where the Israelites tested God at Massah is found in the 17th chapter of Exodus. As God was leading Moses and his people toward the promised land, they camped at a place where there was no water. So the Israelites' immediate reaction was to grumble against God and quarrel with Moses in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. And their lack of trust in God to care for them was evident in their accusations towards Moses. They said, 
Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Exodus 17.3. The Israelites were obviously in a situation where they needed God to intervene. And the point at which they tested God, though, is when doubt and fear overtook them and they came to the conclusion that God had abandoned them in Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. They questioned God's reliability because he wasn't meeting their expectations. It says, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So the difference between these two kinds of testing of God is faith. Now, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about uh, the assurance about what we do, do not see. So the Israelites at Massah tested God because they lacked faith in him. And the Israelites in Malachi's day were invited to test God because they had faith in him. And that's the difference. This is Gino Geraci, 303-873-873. 1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. Pick up the phone, dial that number. I'll be right back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me. 303 873 1935. 303 873-1935. And you know, um, in Nahum chapter 1, verse 7, it says, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. In Psalm 100, verse 5, it says, the Lord is good, And his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. And there is this growing sentiment that you can't trust the goodness of God. Or some people have even argued, how can I trust in the goodness of God when there's so much evil in the world? And part of the answer has to be that the evil in the world doesn't come from God. The Ukraine and Russian uh, war, that didn't come from God. Adam and Eve were tested or tempted by the devil, and they sinned. And immediately after that, Adam and Eve were not on the same page with God anymore. God doesn't tolerate sin. God has no sin within himself. So mankind hid from God in guilt and fear. You could perhaps blame Adam and Eve for the evil in the world as they blamed each other and the serpent. But in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And so it's safe to say that had we been in the garden, instead of Adam and Eve, we have every reason to believe that we would have done the same thing, only quicker or sooner. God is good. 
in that he has a plan to redeem fallen mankind. In Psalm 145, verse 9, it says, The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. And so the idea that God doesn't have compassion, or he does have compassion on some, but not on others, is just simply not true. The salvation that Jesus provides is to me perhaps one of the strongest arguments concerning the goodness of God and the love of God. And of course, in that classic passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God shows us his love, or, or God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the effect of the fall is universal. But so is the offer of divine grace. We might even go one step further and say, and the effect of grace. The effect of grace. It creates Jesus' statement in John 3.16, which is perhaps the most beloved passage in the New Testament, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the Bible indicates the devastating effects of sin upon man, the hopelessness of man in solving his own problem, and that the proper understanding of the doctrine of sin is essential in understanding God's remedy for it. So God is good in that he sent his son to destroy the works of the devil. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. In John chapter 12, verse 31, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That means that Satan has a measure of authority on this earth. He isn't, quote unquote, completely without power or authority or ability to wreak havoc. The blame for the evil in this world should be placed squarely upon Satan. Much is written about the devil, which obviously, according to John 10.10, means he comes to kill and steal and destroy. But then Jesus says, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. We understand that the devil is a fierce enemy. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so, 
303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. Let's see who's up. Paul, welcome to the program. Hi, Jane. Oh, this is Paul. Hi. Gino, I got, you, you know, we have 66 books of the Bible. That, that's correct, right? Correct. So we're, how many books were not accepted as part of the Bible? Like, I know there was Thomas, and I, I you know, I've read there's a quite a few different books that never met. Well, there were there were literally hundreds of, of texts that were were left out because the the way that I would put it is they weren't left out. They were never supposed to be there to begin with. Okay. It, 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 so the way that I would think about it is why are certain why are certain books in the Bible and certain books not in the Bible? Well, in the New Testament, in order to be a part of the New Testament. It had to have been written by either an apostle or a close associate of the apostle. It had to be true. It had to be internally consistent. It had to be widely used within the church. And so the way I would argue it is, no, there there really is no such thing as lost books of the Bible. Because the books that were excluded failed one of those tests. Or all okay. of those tests. And that's right. They failed the test one or more. So. Right. Okay. They failed those tests. So so if a person says, well, hey, you know what? Um, what about this book or that book? Why wasn't that included? Well, it, if it wasn't written by an apostle or the close companion of an apostle like Luke or Mark, um, if it wasn't internally consistent with the revelation of God. In other words, if the early church deemed that it had flaws or inconsistencies, and we can see those kinds of flaws and inconsistencies in books like First Maccabees, for example, or okay. some of the intertestamental literature that was included in the Catholic Apocrypha, the Wisdom of Solomon, um, or, or other apocryphal books, now, the apocryphal books have at least some value because they they are written at a time and they contain information that give us insight and activities into biblical things. But there was a reason why they were excluded and rejected by the Protestant reformers. Um and, and by the way, the Apocrypha, or what's called the Deuterocanonical books, um, were debated and then rejected because they simply contained errors. That I, I don't, there's a lot to know about this. Yeah, there's a lot to know about it. And yeah. Jano, I, I got one other is kind of a, maybe a weird question, but you know, I've been studying Jesus, and you know, after 40 days, he ascended into heaven, and, and the apostles witnessed that. Why didn't? Why don't we celebrate more so? Well, I unfortunately can't answer that question because I've got to go to a break. But you call me back and ask me that question. I, I will. I appreciate it. Thank you. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.